You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Bolters and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you are new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we went into a lot of details as to how to avoid overfitting your trend-following models when designing your strategies. And also allow me to encourage you to check out the CTA series where Alan and I have managed to line up the real decision makers at most of the largest CTAs in the world for some very meaningful conversations on many of the most important topics concerning our rules-based approach to investing. So I hope you will enjoy and appreciate all the time and access we have been given by these true industry leaders. So head over and check out these conversations after you've done listening to Nick and me today. Nick, it's great to be back with you uh, this week. It's been a little while. How are you doing on this Saturday morning in February? I'm doing very well, Nielsen, and thank you so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back to the show, I, I must say. Um, you know, I'm doing very well. In the, it's, a, it's a very heavy traveling period for me, uh, and up until the end of March, uh, I'll be going around the globe seeing investors, speaking to clients, and so on and so forth. So um, at the very least, a Saturday you know, with family at home, it's, um, it's all I'm asking for. Exactly, yes. Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing well. Same kind of situation. Lots of traveling at the moment. Um, and, and then we're both being ripped out of our family time for at least uh, 60 minutes or so to uh, have this conversation. So I really do appreciate that. It's well worth and, it. It's um, well worth it. Exactly. Now, we've got some great topics uh, actually today uh, and a couple of questions that we're going to tackle. Before I do that, I haven't done a market wrap for a little while. So let me just quickly run through kind of what took place this week because it was another interesting, uh, although holiday shortened week, and it was not free from uh, the wild, unexpected economic data that we've been seeing since the start of the year. Activity continues to surprise to the upside as the inflation backdrop. Existing home sales fell 0.7% from last month's measure, while the second look at the fourth quarter GDP was revised also a bit lower uh, to 2.7 from 2.9%. However, the most eye-popping uh, data for the week was the personal consumption expenditure price deflator, uh, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. It rose to 5.4% year over year. Now, that measure, when paired with the above-expectation CPI released mid-month, has taken the steam out of the nascent bond rally uh, that started this year. Interestingly, the usual suspects of inflation hedges like gold, silver, and the self-proclaimed Bitcoin have all taken a dive along with stocks and bond prices and currencies against the US dollar. So it seems like inflation isn't what it used to be and that many investors are left scratching their heads. Now, reacting to all of this data, traders continue to push bond yields higher. The two-year note closed the week at 4.81% as it pushes above the Fed uh, overnight uh, rate. Uh, on its way to 5%. Similar, uh, the deeply inverted 30-year bond rose marginally to 3.94%. Speculators are now looking for Fed funds to peak at 5.4% by August of this year, but there was talk on Friday that the Fed, uh, that the rate 
will need to go to 6% to contain inflation. Now, equities um, continue to react to the Fed's renewed hawkishness and ongoing economic strength with the S&P 500 closing the week below 4,000, nearly 18% below last year's high. And the Nasdaq has gapped lower at the open for 10 out of the 15 days since the February 2nd high. So there's definitely a change of character in the NDX since the rocket rise we saw in January. All right, Nick, with that out of the way, um, what I'd like to do before we dive into all of the topics um, was really to get your kind of your thoughts and comments to um, what you've heard from the uh, CTA uh, managers that we have had um, on the show in the last uh, few weeks. Now, I understand you may not have listened to all of the conversations, of course, um, but I am curious, uh, since you're also obviously overlooking um, lots of money in this space, I'm curious to hear kind of what you found maybe um, a bit surprising, most interesting, wherever you want to go with this. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, I would I would, I would have to congratulate you on the work you've done there. Um, I, 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 I do not think that something like that has happened in the past um, in the sense that, um, you know, it's an industry that somehow we think we have a good sense about and somehow we kind of understand what they're trying to achieve. Um, but, you know, laying them out uh, over the course of like a month or two, all of them expressing their views specifically after this um, kind of great year was was really, really, really interesting by all means. Like, it's almost as if like you're trying to listen to the new episode and then a new one comes out and like, oh, I need another like tube um, kind of journey, um, you know, to work and back um, so that I can listen to the new episode. I think I've, I've listened to probably like... 80% of them, you know, seven or eight of them uh, so far. I think I have like one or two left. So I guess some first reflections on those on those episodes. Number one, I would probably say that it becomes very apparent what we have discussed in the show uh, and you have discussed in the show um, several times. That being that, you know, all trend followers are CTAs, but not all CTAs are trend followers in a way. Obviously, this was primarily focused on trend, but it becomes apparent how whether that is portfolio construction, whether that is dynamic sizing, whether that is kind of blending different premium, whether that is blending different strategies, how different managers have been trying to kind of navigate uh, over the last years or decades, kind of the space of delivering returns, uh, risk-adjusted returns. So that's the first point I would kind of make. Um, I don't think there is particular consensus, but you know, greatly trend is the driving force. But then what you do on the back end of it um, you know, seems to be very diverse. So there is some, I wouldn't call disagreement because I think that's a very bold statement. I would say it like difference in, in, in perspective. Um, that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is notwithstanding the obvious survivorship bias, it's incredible to hear like people being in this business for like 30, 40 and 50 years, right? So that, that, that gives credit to the work they have done. Um, um, that's the second point. The third point I would make uh, which comes also a bit closer to, um, I guess, my world, um, is this, um, when, when we're discussing about how we design trend, and we're discussing how you know, defensive or not defensive or reactive or not reactive they are, the whole discussion kind of pivoted towards a sophisticated discussion with the end client on the utility function, on the expectation, on what we're trying to solve for. Um, and I think no profile can solve for any objective, but certainly some customization is required, but for that to be achieved, um, there is a long process 
end discussion with the end investor as to what is the objective function they want to solve for. So I think that was mentioned by a few people. I think Marty uh, was the one that kind of spent a bit of time on this one. Um, I, I couldn't relate more to it. Uh, I couldn't agree more to it. So this is like some sort of first reflections, but by all means, extremely good job. Thank, well, that's very kind of you to say, uh, Nick. And um, and I think it's interesting, you, you pick up on a po- couple of points that also, um, certainly the last one is probably the one that I wouldn't say surprised me, but, but, but certainly I was really reminded about how the industry um, has evolved and, and are looking much more like kind of solution providers. It's not that I necessarily agree with it because I think sometimes it can also be uh, very hard for the clients to actually know what's best for them. <laughs> they might they might think what they, or they might believe they, they know what's best for them, but I'm not sure it, it always is uh, in, in that way. But it doesn't change the fact that our industry has moved in that direction, I'm sure uh, at, at, at your firm, it's it's very much in focus trying to deliver different customized uh, solutions. So very interesting points. And, and we're going to dive into some of these points because uh, as as I gave you the heads up, I'm actually really interested in your thoughts on some of the questions that we have put to these managers, because of course you are in the same category as these guys. So, uh, so we want to uh, hear your thoughts as well. Before we do that, I also wanted to maybe ask you a broader question, and that is kind of a little bit since we spoke in November. If there's anything in particular that has kind of caught your uh, attention, um, it could be what kind of, whether the conversations you are having have changed uh, now that the year of 2022 finished, so to speak, in a certain way, the way the year of 2023 has begun um, and so I'm just curious to, I know you, you're having lots of conversation at the moment, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, whatever you can share would be quite interesting. I mean, I would say that, uh, I mean, obviously 2022 was, um, was a great year performance wise. Um, and you know, so far 2023 has been a bit more of a big mixed bag. Um, if I were to say, you know, if we look into all the indices uh, or various variations of trend is kind of flat, uh, Bit up, bit down, depends on the variation. But you know, I, I would say like the average trend follower uh, has had like a flat year. You know, possibly less well in Jan, possibly a bit better in Feb. Uh, kind of all averages out to a flat line. Um, I wouldn't say that this is kind of raises any concerns about performance, but I think it's more of a, uh, I guess, re-establishment possibly of trends on a forward-looking basis. The question, however, that comes around is that okay, following this great year, where are we, right? Uh, what is the expectation of forward-looking basis? By all means, I don't think that I can have any any, any crystal ball here, but at least looking at the environment, um, uh, my view hasn't changed from the one that we had back in November. That being that the you know this persistency in in uncertainty, by all means, is an ingredient of of trend formation. Uh, of course, we might argue where is the trend. Well, you know, subject to that being formed, that increased uncertainty will make it more likely to persist. And on that basis, um, and I think several of the um, of the speakers in the in, in the CTA series kind of suggested that you know this macro environment is the one that, if anything, is the one that can make trends should they start appearing uh, persist. I don't think that the investment thesis has has by any measure changed. And I, you know, I think I, I I made that point back in November. You know, looking into these type of strategies should not be an act of regret by all means. Uh, but at the same time, uh, timing them, and possibly we're now kind of front running ourselves. You know, possibly you would, you, you were planning to ask me about timing. I don't know. Uh, but 
I don't think it is easy to time it. So if there's any question or discussion that we're having you know, over the last two months with clients is that you know whether this great year is about to continue and, and, and whether this is now too late. You know, by all means, had we had the same conversation a year ago, we would be like, yeah, okay, after like, you know, a number of years of underperformance, probably it's not the right time. And you know, by all means, what we would, would we know? Right? So I think that's the, that's the point that I'm spending most of my time discussing with clients, whether it is the right time now or not, how the, you know, does the environment uh, kind of evolve? Um, and on that basis, whether it makes sense to look into, into the strategies. I mean, the last point I would say is that, and I think you also discussed that, who was it? Um, probably Kevin. I think it was Kevin. When we're discussing, when you're discussing about the inflows and outflows of the industry over the line over 2022, we know which, if I gather, and, and I can share some of my own experiences, but if I gather, it was a year of great performance, but that was more about bringing back the attention into the theme as opposed to necessarily leading to substantial inflows. Uh, of course, there have been inflows here and there, but the question is whether that has been reflecting the outperformance in its totality. And I think we're yet to see that uh, in the broader in the broader industry. And I think that you know part of the background is is the vetting that all the big gas allocators are currently doing at the moment, uh, whether it's, it's now the time and possibly it's now the time and so on and so forth. So that's another point I would make. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a great point, and um, I certainly see a lot of the same um, things in in my conversations uh, so far this year. We'll get to that, I think, a little bit more um, later. Let me quickly do a, a, a short trend-following uh, update, which I don't think I did last week either. But uh, as you rightly said, uh, Nick, uh, after a, a soft start in January with uh, you know a lot of the longer-term trends kind of correcting, um, you know February so far has been much more uh, constructive for for trend-following strategies. Uh, mainly, I would say, still fixed income being quite dominant uh, in the uh, portfolio with new. A rise in yields across the globe, so to speak. Um, but there's also been a few other things that seem to be doing quite well uh, in the currency sector. Um, and even uh, actually uh, grains and metals, to some extent, uh, have done okay. Equities, yeah, probably a mixed bag, I would say, uh, across the uh, the scope. Uh, and of course, also uh, just speed of trend uh, will have had an impact because we've seen a little bit of a change in in sentiment in stocks uh, the last few months so depending on on how quick you've been to react to that um sort of defines your performance so far uh energies the last uh, few weeks probably not a lot going on in the, in that area and i would also suspect that by now exposure and energies are fairly muted uh, across the board but overall uh, a solid comeback after a soft start um as it should be uh, so to speak uh, when you just look at um, what the markets uh, have done. And I think maybe worth mentioning is just to say that I think these strategies continue to be a very meaningful diversifier to both stocks and bonds. Uh, so that actually hasn't changed since 2022. And uh, and we'll see how investors uh, will react to that in the upcoming investment committee allocations decision, so to speak. My own trend barometer? Finished the week at 41, so it's kind of neutral um, for so far this month. We only got a couple of days left. We'll see. But in, if we look at the indices we we, we like to track, um, the beta 15 index is up about 1% for the month. It's now up about 1% for the year. 
the shock gen CTA index up about 1.4. That brings it to up 0.6 for the year. Shock gen trend about up 1.2. Uh, and this is as of Thursday. Yesterday, Friday was a good day, so it's going to be a little bit better for all of them. Um, but uh, the trend index is down about a quarter percent so far as of Thursday. And the shock gen short-term traders index down about 15 basis points, um, both for the month and for the year, I think. So it's um, pretty, pretty muted so far. Now, as I said, we've got a couple of questions that I want to tackle, and then we're going to dive into some of the topics with you, Nick. But, um, but I wanted to uh, address these because they were uh, prompted by one, people knowing you, you are coming on, but also there was a question as a follow-up to last week's questions, which I think you're perfectly capable of answering. Um, so it's a question from Adam. And he has a question that relates back to the episode I did with Rich last week. And um, Adam writes, there was mentioned of two types of systems, uh, a number of different signals applied to a single market or two, a global system, which is applied to several markets. I've been running a model which is backtested on a single market, performed well on a backtest 10 years, and I wanted to apply it to more markets, about 20 in total. It also performs well on paper, but it's only working on 12 out of the 20 markets with positive returns on average, whether equally weighted or liquidity weighted. The portfolio returns is stable, but 20 components have ranged from some being up more than 100% and some being down more than 50%. Because the, av uh, because the average, let's say, is positive, should I stick with it still? At what point would I assess whether to modify the strategy for the eight underperforming markets and so on and so forth. Now, the reason, and so thanks for that, Adam, that question, because I think it's a quite a good talking point in general, because as systematic managers, and especially if you choose to apply universal rules, meaning using the same rules on all markets, then clearly you're going to have periods where some markets are simply not making money and uh, other markets are doing really well. We see that all the time. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this in general, Nick, how you how you think about that challenge. And maybe also if you have some kind of quote-unquote golden rules where you say, well, hang on, if it hasn't made money for 10 years, for example, I'm going to make, you know, I'm I'm going to change something or I'm going to leave it out. So love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good question. So we can address it in a number of ways. So the first one I would say is that um, I think there's a... I guess there's a philosophical point to be made on how we think about a trend-following strategy uh, from a construction standpoint. Um, and I think we might discuss that a bit later. But you know, when we look into each and every market in isolation, then we effectively have a collection of single strategies. Conversely, we can think about a selection of markets that are put through a portfolio construction engine, and then we deploy risk as a function of, um, you know, let's say individual market riskiness and possibly correlation structure and possibly, you know, the strength of the signals. Now, what is different between those two is that in the former case, the assessment is done purely in isolation, market by market. But in the latter case, there are other dynamics coming into play, uh, you know, by the, you know, by the principles of diversification, um, if you like, you know, overall risk, um, uh, risk balancing. Uh, or risk distribution. So, you know, in the former case, uh, when it's more about single markets and them being assessed in isolation, it can become a, 
um, you know, um, a parameter optimization exercise in a way. Um, in other words, you know, if a signal works in a particular market but doesn't work in another market, what does it tell me? You know, it can very well be that we are lacking one or lacking the other, uh, and I don't know exactly which side of the of the coin we should possibly take. So, I I tend to be quite reluctant looking in each and every market in isolation if there is an underlying premise um, that you expect trends to work. If I look at it from a portfolio perspective, you know, an additional market added into an optimization would by construction make the risk contribution coming from the rest lower because you know it's a zero-sum game so if i add one let's say equity market more um then i would have to all else being equal reduce the contribution i'm getting from the other equity markets and therefore here it becomes more of a story of of, of risk distribution and whether that addition can help me from a diversification standpoint in addition to it you know when we say that some market is not working um, what, what does that really mean? It means that over the longer term we have a negative return, surely. But what if the periods that it has a positive return are the times that all the rest are doing badly? So here's a diversification dynamic which, when assessed in isolation, is not obvious. You know, you just say, oh, this market over the longer term has been detracting performance. But how about that market having done those few periods of doing well when everything else was doing badly? And this is only allowed when we look into the portfolio uh, you know, in, in its totality and not, and not in isolation. So I, I don't think the answer is easy. Uh, the other point that I would make is that you know, something doing badly and being removed from a system that somehow we feel confident about you know, is introducing a bit of a survivorship bias. Um, you know, do we have a crystal ball? Probably not. Uh, so doing the asset selection purely on what performed well recently or over the last 10 years uh, unless it's based on some economic or fundamental reasoning or possibly liquidity reasoning, I think the you know the hurdle to go past, at least for me, is extremely high in terms of removal. Um, and I tend to look at I tend to look at it from a portfolio setting. Uh, I, I do not tend to look at it from an from a market by market uh, perspective. At least that that that's my view. But by all means, um, you know, I'm happy to uh, to be challenged further. No, I don't think there's any challenge there, Nick. I think that's uh, very well said, and I think it's an incredibly important point you brought up about, um, you know, because it's actually, you could say exactly the same about trend following in a, in a multi-asset portfolio, uh, that even during the periods where trend following doesn't necessarily knock the ball out of the park, we still may actually add have an, a, a, a positive contribution overall to the portfolio. So that in itself, I think, is quite uh, important. What I will just say to you, Adam, is a couple of things. One is it's hard for us to assess when you say 20 markets because that could be 20 equity markets and bond markets or is it really 20 very diversified markets. So what I will say generally, why don't you test the classical kind of 50 markets across financials and commodities, see what it looks like. The other thing I will say that unfortunately, even though it might cost a bit of money to get hold of, 10 years worth of data is not enough, unfortunately, especially because the last 10 years have been so different than the last 40 or 50 years. So you should go back if you can, get your hands on some back-adjusted data for uh, you know, 30, 40 different uh, commodity markets over the last 30 plus years to see whether that pattern you see really holds up. And then as Nick said, you need to then select a portfolio of, um, of markets that you one can trade. And secondly, then look at the portfolio returns because they may actually be pretty good once you combine them. And that's obviously the real 
or p- part of the secret of trend following, I, I often hear people talk about trend following as something they can just apply to equities and it's the greatest thing in the world. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Trend following works because it's applied on a diversified portfolio, not on a single market, not on a single sector, not even on two se- sectors. So, so yeah, just a few things for you to go home and, and do further, Adam, and and hopefully you'll get some, some more insights that you can use. The next two questions are from Tim. Um, and Tim writes, uh, this week I have a question on the topic of portfolio volatility. But it is not the typical question about volatility targeting that you discuss with your guests anyway. Having met Nick Baltus in person and having read his work on different ways of using volatility in the trend-following portfolio construction, I would like to get his views on the following. In your recent podcast with Don, boss Marty Bergen, so that's my boss, Marty made an interesting comment along the lines of Don adding risk when markets are trending and reducing risk when markets are less trending. So other discussions on trend following have pointed out that trend following the trend followers may not be the best idea. Personally, I tend to disagree and I'll explain why. Of course, it might not be ideal to chase performance and end up buying into the strategy at a high. Similarly, with trend followers, it is important to hold on through drawdowns and not sell them uh, at the low. However, having done some simple calculations on the historical performance of some trend-following strategies, and this works for Don as well, increasing exposure when the strategy performance is positive and vice versa would have added to the overall strategy performance. The observation would imply that trend-following the strategy performance curve may have some benefit. Uh, what do you and Nick think about the varying of the portfolio volatility slash exposure based on its own recent performance history? So there we are, Nick. Uh, it's a great question. So effectively, the question says, you know, I built a system uh, that being trend-following, and then you know, should I see it performing? I kind of add to it, or I increase the risk, or I increase leverage. I uh, you know all of these are kind of equivalent. So you know, why do I love the question? Because the underlying premise of trend following is that each and every market, should it perform well, it becomes more likely it's going to continue. And therefore, that's at the micro level, right? Now the question is at the macro level. If all of those markets, you know, in conjunction are kind of doing better, does that tell me anything about the aggregate exposure and whether I should have like more at the top level above and beyond what I have at the individual level? So in a way, it's very similar to the dynamic sizing point. Uh, that being, you know, do you dynamically change the exposure to markets as a function of many things, but one of those things being the recent performance? Because if the signal becomes stronger, you might want to deploy more risk to those markets that have been trending more. And therefore, in aggregate, the question is whether you should be doing dynamic sizing off trend itself. You know, in, in a way, it's the same thing. So what are the benefits and the downsides? The benefits is that to the extent that at the underlying asset, we do have outperformance following good performance, um, um, you know, can lead into a hypothesis whereby the aggregation of markets performing well may suggest that you know, we should be increasing performance. Uh, sorry, should, should be increasing uh, the exposure. What's the downside? The downside is just basically miss the trend when it, it, it starts kicking. In other words, um, suge- suppose that we're in a period of, of, of no significant trends. Um, 
if that is the case, then the premise of sizing the top-level exposure as a function of that would mean that we don't necessarily allocate too much into trend. And should there be an ignition of trends, it will take us some time until we get there. Now, I'm not, I'm, I know that I'm not answering the question straight away because this is actually a, an active research topic for us in the present moment. As in, we're looking into whether it makes sense not to have a volatility target at the portfolio level, but rather have a dynamic volatility targeting mechanism, which itself is informed by the average trendiness in the, um, you know, in the, um, in the markets. I think it's a good hypothesis to be tested. It is unclear to me whether that is a premise that we can systematically introduce into the portfolio. Possibly, this is the element that, you know, at the top level, um, above and beyond just trend, um, is what, a, you know, an active manager can decide upon. As in, the overall location into a trending uh, strategy uh, becomes more of a, of a macro view rather than a systematic view on its own performance. So that's the only point that would kind of hint here. But setting that aside, I think it's a beautiful question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so let me address it a little bit since um, I do work for the firm that was referenced in, in the question. First of all, I think where we were coming from in terms of saying, well, you know, ideally we should be increasing risk when there are lots of trends. We should limit risk when there are fewer trends. So we came to this 10 years ago, 2013, we changed. We changed from always having the same risk. Now, we were never targeting volatility. We know volatility of the, of the portfolio will change as volatility in the markets will change, as correlations between positions will change. So that's not what we're doing, but we want to target the risk we take. And, um, you know, from 1974, when the firm was started um, and up until 2013, we didn't have a way to systematically distinguish between a good environment and a bad environment, but we knew that clearly when you have a, a, say, a trendless environment, you shouldn't necessarily run at full risk, so to speak. So that intuitively made sense. We just didn't know how to systematically distinguish between a good and a bad environment until 10 years ago when we implemented some research that we had been working on for quite a while uh, to do that. And and so I think what we're, what we're doing is not necessarily trend following the trend follower. I think because I do think that that there is some truth to the fact that you shouldn't do that. But when you start looking at your signals uh, and your strength, et cetera, et cetera, it it might just give you clues as to you know the environment that you're in. You have to combine that with a few other things. Uh, of course, it's not just looking at signal strength, but I do think it 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 has certainly in our case helped significantly in terms of delivering the same performance, but with a lot less volatility. And of course, for regulatory reasons, I can't name the, I can't mention the percentage uh, improvement we've had, but it's certainly been meaningful. So, so let's leave it like that. Now, I, I, I want to go on to the second question that Tim uh, writes, uh, which came in like a day later, uh, where he says, incidentally, I remember asking Nick six years ago when I met him about the AUM, uh, that the three big groups of systematic strategies, i.e. one CTAs, two risk parity, and three vol control were running. My recollection is that he said, and of course, I, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but he said that there was a bit more than a trillion 
in AUM with risk parity and vol control each 40% and CTAs being the smaller group, about 20%. With what has happened in markets in recent times, i.e. risk parity performing badly, trend follows winning, I would like to, uh, to think these relationships of total AUM have changed. If you have a minute to ask him about this also, I believe that would be of interest. So is that something you track, uh, um, Nick, at all in terms of what where you think the AUM is in, in, in different types of systematic strategies? So, I mean, that goes back, I think, to, to the discussion we had back in November. Uh, I know if you remember, we had this discussion about, um, you know, whether you know, whether systematic investors, uh, namely trend followers, but also like as a, as a byproduct, uh, risk parity and vote targeting um, can cause a drawdown um, to become more extreme and so on and so forth. I, that, that, that's where the, the, I guess the question comes from. Because, you know, in assessing whether this type of investing can make a drawdown larger, of course, we have to understand how big that market is. And obviously on the back end of that, you know, how are their position, how they estimate risk, you know, how much consumption they have of liquidity, da, 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 da. Um, and, and I guess the point that I had made back then was that progressively as we go from CDAs down to risk party, down to volatility targeting, it becomes much harder to claim that we can estimate the size of the market. I mean, for CDAs and trend followers, we can have some numbers. There are databases around that, you know, is like a 300, 400 mark, but we kind of know that it's somewhere there, you know, in billions. Um, you know, the number hasn't changed, at least at the top level, substantially over the last like 10 years. It was a bit higher, you know, towards the end of Q3 last year, towards the 400, it's now like down to 380. But give or take, the city industry has been around this kind of 330 to 400 kind of mark um, for the last 10 years. Now, risk parity to me can be anything from a risk party in equities and bonds to an allocation framework that can be applied on anything. In a way, dynamic position sizing and trend is a form of risk parity or possibly risk budgeting. So, you know, is there double counting here? I do not know, but certainly risk parity is to me partly an allocation framework, partly an investment theme on the asset allocation side. So, you know, uh, you know, if we just stick to an equity bond complex well you know just just looking at the numbers you know a 20% drawdown last year uh, certainly has impacted that but you know obviously from 16 that you know um, we were doing this estimation of of, uh, of market size uh, it's possibly kind of netting out to similar numbers again I'm not following those closely but you know just reading out how equities and bonds have performed in the last four or five years and we can basically make a hypothesis as to how just the risk parity on equities and bonds has um, has evolved. And I guess the last one, that being the, you know, the the volatility targeting, that is even more obscure than the former two, because we can easily argue that volatility targeting is just a mechanism that we can deploy in any form of a strategy in order to control its overall volatility profile. By all means, there are consequences to it, some good, some bad, depending on the on the, on the fundamentals of the strategy. So volatility targeting a I guess a positively skewed strategy is going to impact negatively its performance. If it's negatively skewed, it's positively uh, impacting it. If it's not skewed, at the very least, it's going to flat out the volatility profile. But having said that, when people talk about volatility targeting, I think they refer primarily to, I guess, the FIA market, uh, you know, fixed income annuity market. These, these type of markets whereby um, the end investor um, is effectively a receiver over an option 
that option to be priced requires a relatively flat volatility profile and therefore volatility targeting allows you to get there. But having said that, we can easily claim that a CDA that does dynamic risk exposures and then has a volatility targeting, it's already in itself a combination of those three features. So really getting an estimate of that market is not easy. Uh, and, and, and I think at the time when, when I was writing this report, I was kind of saying, I have conviction for CTAs, and then it kind of drops dramatically as you kind of move away from it. But again, when I think you know, the industry talks about volatility targeting under the premise of uh, making a down move more excessive, down move more excessive, this is primarily risk targeting, volatility targeting equity exposures. I think that's, or, or like the you know the FIAs with me, you know with with relatively um, traditional benchmarks. So I guess more than a minute here, um, I you know I managed to spend a couple of them. I'm not monitoring those very closely. Um, have the ratio has the ratio changed? Uh, not easy to tell. Um, you know, certainly the CTA industry has been relatively uh, stable and possibly a bit nudging up. On the, I guess, on the equity bond, last year was definitely detrimental to it. Uh, and on the FIA market, it has grown uh, over the recent years, but it has grown possibly away from traditional markets um, and more multi-asset, more uh, alternative underliers have been put in place. So it's not too easy to come up with a number. No, and, and on top of that, I just want to, for those who may not be aware of it, when we talk about the CTA industry being, you know, let's call it 375 billion plus minus, uh, you know, 40% of that is attributed to one firm, which is Bridgewater. And I, no, I've never heard them really being classified as or described themselves as a CTA. Um, so uh, it's it's kind of a very hard to get a real gauge on on these things. But let's leave it at that. Uh, appreciate the questions from Tim, uh, and uh, and turn kind of the uh, the topics around a little bit now, Nick, because I uh, couldn't help myself, of course, knowing that we were going to speak today. I thought, well, you know, Nick oversees a lot of systematic strategies, including trend following. So why not take the opportunity to ask some of the same questions or bring up some of the same topics that we've been discussing with our friends in the CTA industry uh, for the last few weeks. So even without my wingman, Alan, I'm going to try and 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 uh, dive into some of the topics uh, because I really do find them fascinating. And I think your perspective will be uh, incredibly uh, insightful as well. So I want to kick off with uh, a topic that has been discussed uh, many, many times, um, and uh, it is crisis alpha. Now, yesterday, we published a conversation with Katie Kaminsky, who, of course, coined the phrase uh, after the GFC. And we wanted to revisit uh, the term crisis alpha as it seems to have been kind of lost in translation a bit. But before maybe I bring up, and and I don't know if you heard uh, the episode or not, but before I talk about maybe what Katie reminded us about, maybe I wanted just to ask you, what do you think crisis alpha mean? And how you think investors should should think about it. Um, so I haven't heard yet uh, what Katie says, uh, but you know, I, I I don't know. So let let's see. But I I, I know her obviously. If you know, um, uh, and I know that obviously the term she she coined for for trend followers. Uh, so the crisis alpha. What what it means to me? Um, 
So crisis alpha, like if we just go through the words one by one, it is effectively performance that comes when a crisis hits, right? Now, I think the subtle point is what constitutes a crisis. And the way that you know I personally look into trend followers, simply because they're price takers, simply because they expect the move to first document itself before a position is deployed, the, fir- the first point I would make is that they're not going to deliver a reactive profile on a day or two of uh, a significant market reaction. So it is not a kind of February 2018 type of a profile. I know if the market following months of outperformance, um, you know, is experiencing an intraday 5 or 10% uh, drop, by all means, positive exposures would be hurt. But now, should that move, once um, obviously documented and, and captured by signals, continues, then we end up, first of all, entering into a more longer-term correction, a more sustained drawdown, a more, you know, somebody called that um, a wear and tear type of an environment. This is more of a macro-driven crisis. This is when the macro-fundamentals make a crisis prevalent. And in that environment, we've seen trend followers delivering this alpha, this convexity. So to me, crisis alpha is more about, hey, defining the crisis, but then subject to that being a longer term correction, this alpha is is is, um, is pretty strong. And, you know, I, I was looking into some numbers. Since you mentioned, I just reminded myself, I was looking into the worst years that S&P has had in the last 25 years. The worst three years, I don't remember the ranking, but, you know, the performance was equally, equally, equally bad, was 2002, 2008, and 2022. So over the whole year, and obviously there's some sort of path dependency here because I'm just picking points, that being beginning of January, end of December, um, but at least on a calendar basis, the three worst years have been those three, 02, 08, and 22. The best three plus one years for trend followers over the last 22 years have been 2002, 2008, and 2022. The plus one is 2014, which is obviously primarily driven at the time by the by, by the oil crash and the uh, and the dollar and rates moves. Now, what am I saying here? All I'm saying is that I did not quote a flash correction. I only quoted two three years that became the consequence of a more macro fundamental down move. It was. The dot-com crash, uh, it was obviously GFC, and it was obviously last year, the, you know, the, the Goldilocks um, uh, reversion. Uh, so to me, that's crisis alpha. And that's why we're looking into trend followers as a return generation um, during a market downturn, but not a flash correction. We can get there as well with some sort of reactivity points, but I'll, 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 I'll leave it there. Is that, is, that in line? is that in line with Kitty? Well, you know what? No. It is yes. in line... No, no, but this is very interesting, and I'm actually really happy that you haven't listened to the episode, but I will encourage you to listen to it will, uh, on your next uh, long-haul flight, uh, which I know is coming up soon, uh, because I think what you're expressing to a large extent is actually exactly what the translation of her work went into, meaning a sharp focus on performance during equity crisis. Now, so... I have been on record saying, well, I thought the term was fantastic. It still is. 
But I also said that I spent a lot of time in the last 12, 13 years debating with people what was a crisis, what wasn't a crisis, and did we make money, did we not make money. So, of course, we had to talk to her in depth about this. And what was really interesting is, of course, she reminded us what the first, you know, how she came up with it. And it's not exactly what I remember. So listen to this. She basically said, you know, the question she was given by a pension fund was, what is it that makes a strategy succeed during stress? And of course, I'm paraphrasing. People should go and listen to the conversation. And essentially what she came back with was she said, well, there are kind of three features the strategy needs to have. It needs to be liquid. It needs to have the opportunity of being opportunistic. And it needs to have no bias. Okay, fair enough. Now, why does it need to be liquid? Well, because if there is stress, you need to be able to efficiently and quickly reposition your portfolio. Um, that's point number one. Why does this need to be opportunistic? Is because you know you need to be able to go long and short depending on where the opportunities are. And she gives a great example. She says, you know, during COVID, the best trade was to go short energy and long bonds. But during 2022, the best trade was to do the opposite, to go short bonds and long energy. Very, very powerful stuff. And then, of course, uh, it needs to have no bias. And uh, a good example of that would be that uh, many people said, well, you know, trend followers have just made money from being long bonds for the last 20 years. Uh, and so once that trend changes, you're not going to be able to make money. Well, last year was nice uh, in the sense that it proved that we have no bias, no emotions. We just went short bonds and and there we are. That was the best performing uh, sector that we, we have. So as I said to Katie, I love the term now again because you just need to explain people what it really means. It's not about whether you make money specifically during a certain crisis, although your points are well taken in terms of three equity years, down years in the last 22 years. All three years were periods where trend followers uh, uh, and CTAs maybe more broadly did well. But actually, we need to talk about what are the characteristics you need to have as a strategy or as an asset in order to de in order to even have the potential of delivering crisis alpha? And there you can, in my opinion, say, well, maybe there aren't that many other strategies or other assets where you can say that that they have the ability to to deliver crisis alpha. For example, let me take a, a, and, and and maybe I'm. I'm not looking at this um, uh, in a broad enough picture, but for example, we were told uh, for a long time after 2018 that the best way to protect your portfolio would be with long volatility strategies. They became incredibly, uh, you know, uh, popular and so on and so forth. But actually, when you look at the three characteristics, it probably doesn't meet all of them. For example, it is stuck in the same sector. It cannot move out of volatility. While with trend followers, we can go into grains, we can go into energies, we can do bonds, stocks, whatever. So, so there you could say, well, maybe it only has one or two of these characteristics and so on and so forth. The same with bonds. Well, you can only be long bonds, so it's not really opportunistic. It can't go short and so on. So when you hear that argument, Nick, so now I can really put it to the test here. When you hear Katie's argument like that or reminder, how do you feel about Crisis Alpha now? Uh, I, th I think we're in full agreement, right? So because I guess what I did not say 
is how those three best years for trend followers were delivered. And then the underlying drivers were so different. And I think that was your point, right? It's this dynamism um, and how, for example, you know, bonds did help a lot by being long in, a, in, in 2008 and then by being short in 2021. Um, you know, or it was like the dollar moves last year, you know, from the summer to November that, you know, gave performance. But, you know, that wasn't the case, you know, back in 2008. It was probably like, you know, going short equities. Last year, going short equities, it wasn't a good deal, by the way, because we had like this very weird market with like very short, very short-lived short squeezes, but certainly in a bear market, relatively unprecedented by magnitude. Uh, you know, so the, you know, the equity rally in March, you know, in, in the summer, and then obviously towards the end of the year, that were like relatively um, you know bad performance uh, attribution wise for for trend followers. That wasn't the case in in 08. So the opportunism, if you like, uh, that's not, that's one of the points that Katie made is certainly or, or the lack of bias is certainly there. Uh, if we start looking through why in the three years that seemingly top level were good years, uh, where the performance came from. So I couldn't I couldn't agree more with that. The other point I would make is that precisely to your point. Longvol has its own, uh, I guess, good attributes, and that is, you know, it's it's instantaneous, effectively contractual reactivity, and this is something for a different type of an environment. So, by all means, a you know a holistic defensive portfolio might as well just combine uh, features from the volatility space, but also from uh, from a trend following space. And I don't necessarily think that they solve for the same objective. There's no long volatility program with like a flat or positive carry profile with like long-term positive sharp. But by all means, I think we jointly believe, I would imagine together with Katie and all the other guests, that trend following is a positive long-term sharp ratio strategy with defensive characteristics. Subject to defining what defensive means and subject to defining what's the utility function we're solving for. So I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, it's great. And and I, I was so happy to be reminded about these things um, because I think it's certainly going to help um, uh, me in, in, in the conversations that I'm having about this uh, to uh, to make these distinctions and to uh, talk about uh, other things that people think about in terms of risk mitigation. And just to make that simple test, do they do they have these three characteristics? Um, so anyways, all right. So we die, we, now we've kind of opened the uh, kimono box here with diving into some of the topics and questions that we've been talking to uh, our our friends and peers with. So I want to continue down this. One of the other topics that we talk about, Nick, that I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on is this, you know, pure trend versus diversifying trend, the evolution uh, of our industry. I'm going to dive into, uh, you know, Cliff Asnes's point uh, later, but, but just generally speaking, and I know you provide solutions in some ways, so maybe you maybe you fall in both camps. But can you talk a little bit about this idea of whether you think uh, our industry have evolved uh, to be more trend plus type providers, so to speak, uh, than than rather than pure trend, and and how how you look at it from from designing strategies as well. So I'm not sure what I'm going to say is going to be radical here, but. It's unclear to me what pure trend is by itself. Like, what do we really mean by saying pure trend? Like, does that mean that any market that goes up, I'm buying by allocating a dollar or a risk dollar to it, and that's it? Uh, is it more of a system that follows signals that monitor recent performance, 
but then it becomes much more involved in risk sizing within sectors, outside of sectors, within asset classes, outside of asset classes, top-level portfolio? Is it a system that somehow embeds risk management features above and beyond vol scaling and somehow reduces exposures when the signals become too large or possibly when the losses in particular markets become too extreme? Is it a system that above and beyond all these you know, is monitoring some form of macro news that above and beyond the trend direction can be impactful about performance. And I'm not sure exactly where we stop being pure trend and we become trend plus something. Because ultimately, in the premise of delivering positive returns over the longer term with you know, good characteristics you know, on, on specific market regimes, I, I think it is almost a survivorship necessity to bring some other features in. And again, it is unclear to me um, where do we draw the line? So that's the first kind of point. And, and, and I guess related to it, like I, I can give another example, and uh, I think that's for another episode, but even by the fact that we vol scale some markets because we have like a multi-asset portfolio and therefore we want to bring commodities and equities together and all that lot, uh, you know, just by our you know, necessity to do, to do so, what we might actually be doing here is that we're enhancing the program simply because we've all scale. Why? Well, even just by, you know, back to the point we made earlier on, why volatility targeting works? Well, if we have a market that we go long and it happens to have more frequent negative outliers than positive outliers, and it has also some sort of volatility clustering, by vol scaling them, we improve them in their own right, above and beyond any trendiness they might experience or, 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 or not. So is that purity or not? Well, to me, it's a form of risk management that happens to have coincidentally good features that makes at the asset level the allocation beneficial. And then, you know, trend adds to it, obviously, because that's more of a signal that captures the, the continuity in the, in, the, in the returns. So um, I, I don't think I'm digressing here. Uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm trying to kind of address the point. Trend plus, you know, only moves away from a broader family within trend when other signals are coming into the game. But pure trend to me by itself is not something that we can easily define. I think it's very endogenous. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I mean, I think that that's a very, um, uh, very astute uh, observation and uh, you bring up a lot of uh, interesting um, points there. So let me take it a, a step further because part of why Cliff Athens brought this up in his paper uh, last year was also, I think, raising the question whether um, we as an industry managers had become too concerned about sharp and therefore we've done things to our systems to essentially um, make them more palatable during the bad times, but also um, probably giving up something uh, during the very good times. But it could help with investors staying with the strategy and, and so on and so forth. So uh, I'd, I'd I'd love to hear uh, your view about whether you know how do you how do you balance <laughs> the uh, the objective of 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 pure trend, which certainly looks different from trend plus. And in this sense, I'm thinking about trend plus something else like carry, like value, like you know I'm not talking about just the a little bit of volatility adjustments, et cetera, et cetera. Because here's the question, I guess deep down. I worry that investors look at our strategies and they look at then the sharp ratio of the strategy 
and they will compare manager's sharp ratio, they'll compare the sharp ratio to different strategies and so on and so forth. But of course, the way I understand things is that, well, first of all, Sharp wasn't invented to be used for individual strategies. It's a portfolio tool. And and what we really should be worried about and focused on is what does these strategies do to the overall portfolio Sharp? What improvement can we see from adding the strategies? So, I, I, so, so in a sense... I, and I don't want to sort of change what what Cliff wrote, but there is this distinction, um, and and maybe somehow we've become too concerned about our own individual shop, and if in in trying to improve that, we're actually and maybe investors are not even aware of it, we're actually going to reduce the overall portfolio shop improvement that we would otherwise deliver. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'd love no, to hear makes, your thoughts. It, it, it makes total sense. Um, you know, if I were to kind of paraphrase or even simplify, um, you know, if in an up market I buy equities, I would have a better sharp. Now, do I actually have a better profile to be added on a portfolio that includes equities? Probably not. Right, and and I think the point that I would make to to I guess to the question or I guess to the theme is that. Um, I couldn't agree more that we have possibly become too too drawn to this kind of sharp ratio and game. Um, and at least to me, and the way we operate, and uh, you know, the way we try to discuss with with investors and clients, is on a more conditional basis. In other words, and I think you know, Russell made that point. We are looking into performance across specific economic outcomes. Because that's what we try to solve for. So you know, an element of solutions is not oh, what can I add to my portfolio so that over the longer term has better sharp? But it's more about what can I add to my portfolio to cater for economic regimes that I might be more exposed to. And that is a very, very different uh, utility function, um, but also a much more well-defined one. Because what is a long-term sharp ratio? Well, uh, I guess if, uh, if the processes are ergodic, we can have a sharp ratio for the last year, and then we can hypothesize that that's the sharp ratio for the longer term. But this is not reality, right? That's that's not how it works. So, by all means, any sharp ratio is a, um, I guess, is a function of the of the period we're looking at. Conversely, looking into more specific economic outcomes, we can have a better understanding. Again, that is still a victim of how much data we have, but at least we have more understanding of the economic mechanism, you know, you made the point earlier on, you know, looking into Sharp for 10 years, it's probably not going to work that well for trend followers because that was a not great period for, for trend followers. So I think to me, looking into Sharp is not the right answer. Um, you know, if anything, there are strategies that have some virtues. Uh, you know, you mentioned long vol. Well, if I look into the Sharp ratio of long vol over the longer term, it's negative. Not only is it negative, it doesn't even make any sense because a negative return divided by a volatility number for more volatility would look better because it would be like closer to zero, not closer to more negative. So just a sharp ratio is not enough. I think we should be looking into number one, sharp ratio across economic outcomes we want to solve for. Number two, sharp ratio improvement to what, what we ultimately hold as a combo. And we know we really look into, I, I, I would want, and I'm trying to um, avoid just looking into a sharp ratio. 
I'm aware of 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 our time, but I, I do want to try and see if I can squeeze in a couple of more topics with you, Nick. And and that is um, one thing that that I'm interested in, I guess, is you know, narr- you know na- I think narrative have become such a powerful part of of uh, uh, you know how people end up making decisions, so to speak, uh, in 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 the end. And one of the things that, and we already touched upon it a little bit, and that is the conversations I'm having right now, uh, a lot of the uh, things people say is, well, two things. One is, well, if 2022 was such a great year for, for, for trend following, for CTAs, well, then clearly 2023 can't be. That's their view. And the second thing is that I come across is that people really look at trend following as a trade. Um, coming back to the point about the timing of it, meaning they really look at it as a trade. And where I'm trying to say to them, you can have, you know, you have a portfolio of $100. Why don't you take $90 and just put in all your views and your expectations and your, you know, biases and whatever and, and make your allocations accordingly. But this 10% here that you want to allocate to trend following, you simply just have to be convinced by the data that it has a positive impact to your oil portfolio. Then you need to allocate, and then you need to do nothing and have no opinion about what goes on inside. I mean, of course, expecting them to have picked uh, uh, an established and 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 long and, and and manager with a good reputation, all of that stuff. But essentially, you need to treat your trend following allocation completely differently to all the other investments you make, because otherwise you're not going to be successful, then you will end up trend-following the trend-follower, so to speak, which we don't want. So given the fact that a firm like you, the one you work for has so much more cloud than any, anyone else when they go out and talk to clients, how would you, how would you, um, I don't want to see use the word convince, but how would you compel people, investors, not to have too much of their own opinions and biases like, well, if 2022 was good, then clearly 2023 can't be. How, how would you change that conversation, that narrative that goes on in the mind of the investors and and hopefully move them a little bit more towards what I was suggesting that th- this part of their portfolio, they really should not uh, apply their own views and biases, except that they should do the number crunching and they should be convinced and they should be comforted by the results they see in the data, the evidence, so to speak. So um, I guess generalizing the question is, is, is effectively how much of you know, human biases and, and behavioral biases we can impose into an investment uh, and, and investment thesis and, and how different discretionary to systematic investing is. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, looking into an allocation um, and, and be behaviorally driven by... Um, you know, by our own views or possibly by our macro views, to your point, um, you know, might be detrimental for the trend itself. You know, we'll end up kind of trend following the trend followers. I think that 2022 to 2023 uh, kind of point you made, aside from the fact that we just changed the year, nothing else necessarily happened, right? In, in reality, just like a data point, uh, which is now, you know, at the, you know, the 31st of December, somehow something happens, nothing happens. Um, so um, um, I, I, can, I can try to defend that, um, you know, in, in that sense, it's just a, a day, right? Um, but, you know, I guess on a more, on a more serious note, um, the way we, or I am trying to have those conversations with investors uh, with regards to trend following and, and other type of profiles 
is, um, you know, and I think we made the point earlier on today, but also in November, A, it could not be an act of regret, but B, there has to be some form of conscious resistance on timing. I, I think timing is hard and timing needs a lot of time to be proven skill versus luck. And therefore, uh, because human beings have very short memory, they can very easily attribute a good call as skill and a bad call as bad luck. And therefore, having not lived through that experience, it's hard to be convinced. Living through that experience can be sometimes a good outcome, but can be sometimes an outcome whereby career risk is at stake. And we're here to basically address the latter. And addressing the latter has to somehow be related with a more strategic way of looking into a portfolio, looking into specific outcomes, looking into the data, as you said, running the analysis, crunching the data, vetting the people behind, I guess, the, the engine, uh, but have some form of conviction that A, dynamic timing is a hard exercise, but number two, that some form of trend allocation and other bits, but trend allocation is more of an essential add-on than a good to have. Um, you know, and again, acting upon it following a bad year or a good year, to me, is, is, is equal to just acting upon it irrespective of, of any, short, um, any short past kind of experience. Um, so that, that's how we're trying to approach it. And, and by all means, you know, just purely looking into a sharp ratio and looking at the data, you know, you'd be inclined to do like 100% in trend and you know, 0% in all the rest. But you know, that's not how we should be allocating money anyway. So that's my perspective. Uh, I'm not sure if that kind of makes sense. You know, I um, absolutely uh, makes perfect sense. Now, the final question I definitely could not not ask you because I've asked everyone else, and that is, what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? I'd love to hear your answer to that one. We've had some different answers and some similar ones, um, but uh, I'd love to hear what you think is the uh, the one thing that you disagree with the most. Um, you know, that that following following a few years of underperformance, that it's dead. That's it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, and you know, we've seen that, right? I think I think it was also in the news. Um, there was there was in the news in January. Um, there was one article basically saying, you know, is trend dead? And I'm like, first of all, define dead. Is it like dead for a short term period of time, or like for a longer term? Like, should we forget about it? Like, I guess there's always like, a, you know, especially when we you know we we go into the news and we read the news. There's always a bit of vagueness in in statements people make. You know, I remember. I think, what, what is the book? I think it's like a super forecasters by Tetlock. He makes a great point whereby when we make uh, hypotheses, uh, unless we, uh, we, know, we bring together with it a probability as well as a time horizon, it is impossible to be assessed. And therefore, we're always on the winning side. If I tell you that tomorrow it might rain, Look at that. If it rains, I'm going to tell you, listen, I told you, should have gotten an umbrella. If it doesn't rain, I'm going to tell you, listen, I didn't tell you it's going to happen for sure. I told you it's kind of might rain. Put that into context. If I don't even say tomorrow and I'm just going to say it might rain or it might not rain, I even make that statement more vague because I don't even have a, a horizon for me to be assessed. I'm always right. 
And, you know, and I guess all the likely and the mighty and then uh, all those, all, all this terminology people use is just to create more vague statements. And, and, and I'm always consciously trying to be much more specific when it comes to probabilities and, 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 um, and time horizons. Anyway, I'm digressing here, but I think it's important. No, no, right? it's it's it it is great, and I and I appreciate you elaborating on your uh, on your uh, on the one thing that you hear that you disagree with uh, the most, which of course was not a big surprise, I have to say, and we have heard that from a, a few other people. Anyways, Nick, this was uh, this was great. This was uh, delightful as usual. And uh, if people, if you listening to this episode feel that you also are getting some value from them, why don't you hit um, uh, or go to uh, Apple or Amazon or, or Spotify, leave a rating and review. We so much appreciate that. And not only does it show us that you uh, like the content, it also helps other people discover this podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Alan. So uh, maybe we will talk about some of the stuff that we feel we've learned during the current conversations with our peer group. Uh, of course, you should also email some questions to us. Info at toptradersonplug.com is where you do that. With that said, from Nick and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.